Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Affirmative action in higher education based on race appears doomed, say court watchers. The U.S. Supreme Court yesterday heard arguments in cases against Harvard and UNC, and the court's conservative supermajority showed skepticism of the use of race-conscious admissions policies to diversify student bodies. Here's Justice Thomas. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. We'll review what happened and look at what California's ban on considering race in public college admissions tells us about what the future holds. We get started after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Over the course of five hours of arguments yesterday, the Supreme Court's conservative majority appeared skeptical of the race-conscious admissions policies used at the University of North Carolina and Harvard. And if the court decides against the colleges, it could issue a ruling broad enough to overturn decades of allowing considerations of race in college admissions and even in other contexts. California already bans affirmative action based on race in public universities since the passage of Prop 209, and our state's experience has played a prominent role in these cases in arguments from supporters of keeping race-based affirmative action in higher ed. This hour, we learn why and more about what happened yesterday. And joining me are Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor at UC Irvine School of Law. Professor Goodwin, so glad to have you back. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And also Ian Milheiser, Senior Correspondent at Vox. Appreciate having you on as well. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So Ian, what questions are these two lawsuits, the lawsuits in both the UNC and Harvard cases, essentially asking the court to answer? What's at the heart of both of them? Yeah. Well, the heart of it is whether or not we can have what are called race conscious as admissions programs at universities, meaning that at some point in the process, 
the university considers some applicants race um, when deciding who to admit. And what the court has said in the past is that schools can only take very limited account of race. You know, they, they have consistently put, um, you know, a, a good number of restrictions on universities that want to consider race, while at the same time acknowledging that Diversity is a virtue. People, when you go when you go to college, you don't just learn from your professors, you learn from your classmates. And if you have classmates with many different experiences, you're going to learn more. So you want to have racially diverse campuses. And the question is whether this very limited consideration of race to have these more diverse campuses is still allowed, or whether it, you know, what I think is the likely outcome, given who controls the Supreme Court, whether it's going to be forbidden in its entirety. Hmm. And do you think that is the case, Michelle Goodwin, after listening to the arguments yesterday that this conservative majority will, in fact, rule against the university's policies of using race in some form? You know, it's hard to know. That's quite possible. What many of the commentators have observed and what we see through the oral arguments and transcripts is that it appears that there may be five votes uh, to do away with affirmative action. Of course, this would be before the timeline that was issued by Justice O'Connor in the Grutter case. And basically these, both of these challenges are seeking to, uh, seeking basically to shut that timeline that Grutter provided where Justice O'Connor kind of pulling out of thin air um, acknowledged that diversity inclusion on campuses is critically important, that it's critically important to how we educate uh, people, it's critically important to how we build societies, how we learn from each other, and that for another 25 years it would be needed these kinds of programs that take into account race although notably race isn't the only factor that's utilized by campuses in order to determine what their student bodies will be but it appears that you know that it's possible that affirmative action based on race uh, may be overturned by this court but i think also it's important that when we think about what affirmative action is that it's understood that there are many different forms of affirmative action. What's being attacked in these cases is affirmative action by race, but what is not being attacked is affirmative action that's based on um, prior members of one's family attending that college or university or other kinds of admission factors such as one's talent with a particular instrument, one's sports ability, et cetera, which are also forms of affirmative action, though they don't have that taint of race um, with regard to affirmative action. And there's so much to talk about in terms of those histories. Yes. So like legacy admissions, as you're saying, athletic mm -hmm. ability, whether you live in a rural area, those kinds of things are not at all at issue here. It's whether or not you consider specifically the naming of race um, mm -hmm. or identify your race that is, and the university uses that in some form to determine a candidate's, um, I guess, their uh, their ability to succeed at the university and whether or not they should be admitted. That That sure. is what is problematic. Can you just talk briefly about the UNC case? Because the justices spent several hours, two and a half hours at least, specifically on UNC. Can you just remind us what it's about, Michelle Goodwin? Mm -hmm. 
Sure. Well, with both of these lawsuits, one involving Harvard, which is the private institution, but the second case is the case that involves the University of North Carolina, which uses socioeconomic factors in its admissions process. Um, and also the allegation is that also, you know, race is incorporated in there and that this violates Title uh, VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And this is a case where Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, who's the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court, uh, had much to say and much to ask the lawyers about in this case. For example, why would it be that uh, one student could have a, you know, express what they wanted to in their, you know, in, in their letter that they write to the college for admission, but a student who wants to write about family hardship and wants to write about race, how that student couldn't share that kind of information and, and why. And I think that what she was piercing beyond just what students may be able to or not do and what could pose an equal protection problem, she really wanted to get at the histories of racial discrimination that have taken place, which the University of North Carolina acknowledges, mm -hmm. um, some of which we've perhaps even seen in recent years, some of that history coming to the fore. These are histories of exclusion, direct exclusion because of one's race histories in the state itself with significant um, discrimination during the Jim Crow period and how many of the vestiges of both American slavery and also Jim Crow are still alive um, in that state and how the university historically has participated directly in discriminating against people of color, namely African-Americans in the admissions process. And it's worth noting too, that as these conversations about affirmative action come up, there is the kind of stereotype that historically what it's meant is that people who were never qualified for admission, when that actually isn't the full history of affirmative action in those states, is just full out blatant racial discrimination, denying people, even very talented people from being able to be admitted based on their race and this used um, primarily against African-Americans. Yeah, we actually have a clip of uh, Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson making those points. Let's hear them now. What I'm worried about is that that seems to me to have the potential of causing more of an equal protection problem than it's actually solving. And the reason why I get to that possible conclusion is thinking about two applicants who would like to have their family backgrounds credited in this applications process, and I'm hoping to get your reaction to this hypothetical. The first applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family has been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, and I would like uh, you to know that I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. I now have that opportunity to, to do that, and given my family background, it's important to me that I get to attend this university. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. 
As an African-American, I now have that opportunity, and given my family, family background, it's important to me to attend this university. I want to honor my family legacy by going to this school. Ian, first quickly, if you also want to share what you felt Justice Brown Jackson was saying to get, was saying or trying to get across in posing this hypothetical. Sure. So, I mean, one issue that came up over and over again. So, like, let's say that the Supreme Court outlaws affirmative action tomorrow, says that universities can't consider race at all. So, one thing that's probably still going to happen right now, the common application that almost everyone uses to apply to college requires people to check boxes indicating, or it doesn't require, but you can voluntarily declare what your what, what race you identify with. So if a black student is admitted, first of all, how are you going to know why that why that black student was admitted? I mean, maybe you sue the, the, the university and you uncover a bunch of documents and you try to figure it out that way. Second of all, like students write essays and they write essays about a whole lot of things. I mean, I would actually point to a different question that that Justice Barrett asked where she said, you know, suppose you have a student who, say, who says, you know, they are a Latino student and they submit an essay saying, I really take a great deal of pride in my Mexican-American heritage. And that's what their essay is about. And the university says, this is a great essay. We're going to admit that student. Now, how are, is anyone supposed to figure out whether the university admitted that student because they thought it was a well-written essay, because they thought it made a good argument, or because they wanted to admit this student because they are Latino? I mean, at a certain point, you can't figure that out. But what you can do is make things extraordinarily difficult for universities because every time a student, you know, someone objects to an admissions process, every time a white student is not admitted, every time, you know, the Harvard case, there's a lot of talk about statistical data showing that Asian American applicants were particularly unlikely to get admitted to Harvard. I mean, there's always going to be some group that statistically was less likely to be admitted than some other group. And the problem with the decision just saying that you can't consider race at all is that if that is the rule there is just going to be a flood of lawsuits and it's going to be unworkable i don't know how universities are going to be able to operate if you know if every admission decision they make is under that degree of scrutiny we're talking with Ian Milheiser of Vox and Michelle Goodwin, UC Irvine School of Law. You, our listeners, can join the conversation. Did you hear the arguments yesterday or read about them? If you want to share your questions or reactions, you can email them to forum at kqed.org, post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call us 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Jessica Roy of the LA Times has not only reported on identity theft, she herself is a victim of it. She joins us to talk about how banks, credit agencies, and law enforcement can do more to protect us. Has your identity ever been stolen? If you want to share your story, you can leave us a voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking about the challenges to affirmative action policies at the University of North Carolina and Harvard that could do away with race-conscious affirmative action altogether. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in these cases yesterday, and we're reviewing the justice reactions and analyzing how they might rule with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor at UC Irvine School of Law, and Ian Milheiser, Senior Correspondent at Box. His most recent book is The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. Michelle, I'd like to turn now to the second case the justice heard, the Harvard case that we've been talking about. And you talked a little bit about how this is different from the UNC case, but could you say more about what is at issue here? So the Harvard case involves a private institution, not a public uh, institution, although it's interesting to note just the pair of these uh, cases. And so the case involves the private school, Harvard University's undergraduate admissions process, Um, And there's the claim that it discriminates against Asian American applicants. And Harvard has placed on its website further information, which I point listeners to. And Harvard says on its website that this is something that is not new, that it dates back to 2014 with an organization that's led by Edward Blum calling itself Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, suing Harvard and alleging that the university discriminates against Asian Americans. And the lawsuit is seeking to prevent Harvard College and other colleges and universities from using what Harvard calls wide ranging and thorough admissions processes when it considers the whole person or the whole applicant. And then Harvard goes through a kind of timeline dating from 2014 to the present where there has been the effort basically to defeat what Harvard considers to be a very comprehensive um, look at who the applicants are when it is deciding who it will admit. So Justice Alito seemed to take the discrimination piece of this as fact. Let's hear a little bit about his back and forth with uh, the attorneys in support of Harvard. I haven't heard any explanation for the disparity between the personal scores that are given to Asians. They rank below whites. They rank way below Hispanics and really way below African-Americans. What, and you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of applicants, maybe thousands. What is the explanation for that? So the explanation that was, I can't do better than the findings of fact in the trial court as affirmed. And, and I, and I, but I want to make two points very clear with respect to your question. We, all of this evidence was All of this was on display and in front of the trial court for 
this Asian American part of it for well more than a week, maybe two weeks. The district court found, considering all of the evidence, that there is, quote, no credible evidence that corroborates the improper discrimination suggested by SFFA's interpretation of the personal rating. Page well, all right, I'll try one more time. So, Ian Milheiser, basically what Waxman is pointing out there is basically that the trial courts just said, we don't see any evidence of discrimination in this policy yeah, and the way I mean, they acted. Yeah. What Alito was asking about there, I mean, it goes to the point I was making before the break, which is that essentially what happened in the Harvard case. So it, it, there are many stages to the Harvard admissions process. It's reviewed by you know, it's reviewed in several different processes. One of the earliest stages of that process is that someone goes through each applicant, each application, and they rate each candidate. I believe there's six different categories. It's like academic ability, leadership ability. One of them is just personally, like how much, you know, how personable is this person? And then they get an overall rating. So there's all of these different categories. And what the plaintiffs in this case found is they conducted a, you know, they did a whole lot of digging. They gathered all of this data on what different ratings people got. And they found that of those six or so categories that people are evaluated on at a very early stage in the process, Asian Americans were statistically more likely to get a lower rating on one of those categories than, than other applicants. And I mean, what do you take from that? I mean, we're talking about an early stage in the process. We're talking about one of multiple categories. You know, that could be sheer randomness. It could be an indication of bias, but there didn't, the, the lower courts found that there wasn't any real evidence of bias. There was just the statistical anomaly. And again, what I am afraid of, if the court is going to not give universities a little bit of leeway in their admissions programs, is that I bet you could look at any university in the country. You can look at all of the factors that they consider. You know, the University of North Carolina says it considers 40 different factors when it's deciding who to admit. And I bet if you look at all of those 40 different factors, you'll find a statistical anomaly in there. That's just how statistics work. And if that can form the basis of a lawsuit, then... I mean, every university is constantly going to be sued and they're constantly going to be sued by people like Ed Bloom who are in the business of suing universities. So, you, you know, I just, I worry, I worry a lot that the Supreme Court is taking the entire head, higher education system down a path that's not going to benefit anyone. Well, you've you mentioned, know. yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Michelle Goodman. <laughs> yeah, no, if, if I could just add in, in terms of the arguments made by Harvard, it includes noting that there has also been legal process here. So that even after 2014, when there had been the original allegations, there were complaints that were alleged uh, against Harvard with the Department of Education uh, and the Department of Justice. And it's worth noting that the Department of Education evaluated and dismissed the complaints during the summer of 2015. And that it wasn't then until the next presidential administration um, in late 2017, under the Trump administration, that the Department of Justice then reopened this case, which had essentially uh, been closed. Um, and so they 
reopened it in 2017 with an investigation. Um, and so that's just worth noting in terms of what added process was here that might be overlooked. So both of you have mentioned uh, Edward Blum or Bloom and uh, <laughs> Students for a Fair Admission. Can you just remind us, Ian, who that is, what Students for a Fair Admission is, admissions Man, is? Man, I... I like, you know, I'm a journalist. I try to be charitable when I discuss the people that I cover, but it is difficult to be charitable when describing this man. So this is an individual who was a stockbroker for many years. He is a a white man. I, I believe he is fairly wealthy. And then at some point he retired from being a stockbroker and he decided that what he wanted to do was arrange lawsuits challenging civil rights policies. So he is he is the man behind multiple lawsuits challenging affirmative action policies. He has is behind multiple lawsuits challenging the Voting Rights Act, which is the law that prevents um that, that, that's supposed to prevent race discrimination in elections. He was behind this really broke lawsuit the court heard a while back that essentially tried to shift congressional representation from immigrant communities that were primarily Latino to white communities in states like Texas. So like this is a consistent pattern with him is he is challenging laws whose purpose is to make sure that people of color can participate on an equal basis in our society. And he's apparently very good at it. He, he raises a lot of money to bring these lawsuits. He gets you know very competent lawyers to represent his clients in these lawsuits. And you know if you are a university, I think he is someone that you need to be frightened of. You, you know he, he is someone, who, I mean, what he does is he looks for ways to challenge civil rights policies and other policies that were enacted in order to cure the legacy of discrimination or prevent discrimination from happening in the future. And, you know, and he's very, very active. And every time he wins, he takes that win and then uses that precedent to try to get the next win. Well, let me go to some calls that are coming in now. Uh, Dan in Santa Clara, you're on. Well, hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My question is this. Let's say the Supreme Court does what many of us fear it will do and get rid of affirmative action. If the goal of affirmative action is to address past wrongs as well as provide opportunity for previously disadvantaged um, people, how much would purely economic affirmative action make up for uh, any loss that we'll experience as a society for opportunities for disadvantaged black and brown people. Mm. Uh, Dan, thanks for the question. Michelle, maybe I'll go to you on that one. If the court does away with race-based affirmative action, what about economic-based affirmative action? And would that end up creating a diverse campus, which has been stated as the goal or which the courts have affirmed as what is right for college campuses? Would that help? Well, it's a good question. And it's a question that has pervaded this area. And it's worth noting that the president and chancellors of the University of California submitted an amicus brief in uh, this case 
And they write that the University of California system, which is banned from using race in, uh, in admissions, so that it served in the wake of that as a laboratory for experimentation for race neutral matters, which could also include socioeconomic and other factors since California banned race conscious admissions in 1996. And what they write is that these measures have failed to enroll a sufficiently diverse student body to see the educational benefits of diversity despite great investment and spending. And they write that underrepresented minority enrollment dropped 50% or more at UC's most selective campuses um, after race-based uh, admissions were no longer being utilized and that they just simply haven't been able to come up to speed with race neutral um, types of admissions platforms. Well, Bill, I think, is raising a similar point. Bill writes, there's no reason affirmative action should be doomed. Since Prop 209, the University of California system has shown it can use affirmative action without racial discrimination in admissions. I guess, in a way, um, what they're saying is that, is a point that's also been made, is that initially, Ian Milheiser, there were significant drops in both applications from students of color, particularly black applicants, um, and that there were drops in overall diversity of incoming classes, but that over time, California has figured out a way to, to diversify and is getting better at it. Right. But it's well, it, I'll let Ian answer that. But according to the, the amicus brief submitted by the chancellors that you see that the rates for admission rates for African-American applicants remain well below mm -hmm. the 1995 levels. Yeah, I think the takeaway was that nothing can can really substitute for affirmative action yeah. policies that really use race. But go ahead, Ian, if you have a reaction to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it may be fair to say that California is getting better at it, but it is nowhere near as good as, at, you know, producing racially diverse campuses as it was in 1995 before affirmative action was banned. Uh, I mean, I, I can throw some specific data points out here. You know, Latinos make up 52.3% of all graduating public high, high school students in the state of California. They make up slightly more than 25% um, of students at, in the University of California system in 2019. So half their representation in, in the population. And I think you see similar data for Black and Native American students. The other point I'll make is that a lot of the alternatives to, to affirmative action are very blunt instruments. So one thing that California did after Prop 209, the provision banning affirmative action, is they implemented a top 4% program. So if you, if you graduate from the top 4% of a California high school, you're automatically admitted. This is modeled on a Texas program that then Governor George W. Bush implemented um, back in the 1990s. I mean, this is this is a long-standing conservative alternative to affirmative action. And I mean, if you look at how it works, I mean, it is not as effective as race-conscious affirmative action, but it's still somewhat effective in racially diversifying campuses. But if you're just admitting the top whatever percent, then you're not really committed to diversity. 
because diversity means a whole lot more than race. You, you, you know, imagine, for example, that you have a student who is a middling high school student at a, at a California high school. They, they then en enlist in the Marines and they have a very distinguished service record as a United States Marine. You, you know, they, they, they serve overseas, they become a non-commissioned officer, you know, that very distinguished record as a leader in the Marine Corps. And then after seven years, in the Marine Corps, they say, I would like to go to UC Berkeley. I mean, I think any sensible university would want that person in their freshman class. But if you're using a top 4% admissions criteria, then the only thing that matters isn't who is this person. It isn't what will they add to the campus. It isn't what can their classmates learn from them. And it isn't how distinguished is their record as a United States Marine. The question is, were they in the top 4% of their class? And in the case of this student, the answer would be no. So they're, they're likely not to get in. So, you know, if you want diversity, then you need to pay attention to diversity along all the axes that we care about. Well, let me play a cut from Justice Elena Hagan addressing uh, diversity before we head into a break here. If universities are not racially diverse and your rule suggests that it doesn't matter, well, then all of those institutions are not going to be racially diverse either. I, I and, and I thought that part of what it meant to be an American and to believe in American pluralism is that actually our institutions, you know, are reflective of who we are as, as a people in all our variety. Some of the reporting that's been coming out after yesterday, Michelle Goodwin, has been that it seems members of the Supreme Court are even questioning whether a diverse campus is um, is something that can be fostered effectively or even really, really important <laughs> in terms of an educational experience. Did you also walk away with that? Sure. So it's it's quite different, one might say, than when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court and the uh, Grutter uh, case was being decided. And, and at a time in the United States where there was a sense building on histories of the Supreme Court striking down discriminatory laws, that there is real value of having our institutions reflective of what people look like in society. That you know, American military forces had written an amicus brief saying that we are a stronger military, you know, the United States has a stronger military when it is diverse. There's so much that has been said uh, respecting that and the tide seemingly has turned and less respect for less embrace of understanding the benefits of our institutions reflecting the kind of broad wealth of what people bring socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, religiously, and so forth. Which raises questions about what a ruling could look like, the potential outcomes from the Supreme Court. So we'll talk more about that after the break. We're talking about challenges to affirmative action policies at UNC and Harvard and their broader impact. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the challenges to affirmative action policies at the University of North Carolina and Harvard University that could do away with race-conscious affirmative action altogether. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in those cases yesterday, and we're, we're, we're reviewing the justices' reactions, referring to them, and analyzing how they might rule with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor at UC Irvine School of Law, and Ian Milheiser, Senior Correspondent at Vox. And with you, our listeners, 866 6786 is the number to call. You can also post your questions, comments uh, at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And uh, let me go to caller Helena in Fremont. Hi, Helena. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, so let me introduce myself a little bit. My background is that I am a first-generation immigrant from China. My husband and I, we came here around 20 years ago. And as a student, so we finished our degree, we worked so hard to build our foundation in brand new country. And I think this rule and this case and the discussion absolutely applicable to us because my daughter is in high school as a sophomore in high school. And actually, she is also a contributor for KQED Youth Media Challenge. She's so oh. passionate about the law, law and the equal right. So I had in our family, we had fierce discussion about what's going on because it is impacting her future in three years, right? So what we agreed upon is that no matter from the Supreme Court or from the university admission officer perspective, they really need to pay attention to individual effort rather than the race. Because think about what's the most important thing for every one of us. When we were born, we cannot choose who we are as a race. But everything after we were born, we do our best to build a person as our individual. So if the, the university admission officer pay much more attention on race, that means that they are ignoring the individual effort from each of the person, right? And we heard so, much, so many examples. I think one of the examples really saying in my heart is um, about, about 10 years ago, there were Indian students apply for medical school, and he had best score in all the applicants, but he got turned down in majority of the, the high level, like a top 20 university. He, he just thought it's unfair. So what he did is that he turned her, his resume. He, he made himself bold, shaved himself, added eyelashes, made a picture as a black American, African American. Then he resubmitted with a new profile. Guess what happened? All the major Ivy League accepted him as a student. So I guess what we are facing is that if you are standing in each student's shoes, right, they, they work so hard. They believe in the system, try to you know, make every way to their dream school. But in the end, if 
the answer is that, sorry, because you are from this race, we have to limit how many we can get you in. Therefore, your effort is not going to match. Well, yeah. Well, Helena, thank you for sharing your story. And I can tell that this is deeply felt. I'm not familiar with the one that you just shared, but I guess the bigger point uh, that I want to make with regard to just the way people feel about affirmative action and the way that they perceive race-based affirmative action, it does seem, Ian Milheiser, that the tide is turning away from it. There are surveys, polls by Pew and other entities that basically show that you know, nearly three quarters of U.S. adults say that race or ethnicity should not be a factor in college admissions. Even Black, Hispanic, and Asian respondents also oppose the consideration of race and ethnicity. And California in 2020 had had a proposition that would try to reinstate uh, the what was banned by 2009. And that also failed pretty handily as well. What do you make of that? So a few responses. I mean, one is that the United States is a democracy. And, you know, if a state legislature wants to set a state's policy for affirmative action, like that is something that is allowed. We get to elect our state legislatures, unlike our Supreme Court justices, which is one reason why I think that the Supreme Court should not be making this decision. Um, The second point is, like, I think it's important to just understand what we are talking about when we when we say the term affirmative action so the caller you know criticized a system where a university says we're only going to accept but so many people of a certain race and once we've filled up that quota then you know we're not going to take any more that is illegal that has been illegal since 1978. That has been illegal since the Baki decision. Um, so it's, you know, the, the, there, there, is, there are zero universities that say we're only going to take but so many people of a certain race. What does happen at some universities, so let's describe Harvard, since Harvard is, you know, one of the universities being sued here. Harvard is an ultra elite school. At Harvard, if you divide the Harvard applicants up into deciles by academic record, and then you take the 10% of applicants to Harvard who are, you know, the 10% with the best academic record amongst people who are already so good that they are applying to Harvard, Harvard rejects 85% of the applicants in the top decile. So Harvard is constantly turning away hyper-qualified applicants who would do very, very well at Harvard because they're just that selective. The role that race plays at Harvard and the role that it plays in some modern, um, in many modern universities is that if you come down to the point where you have multiple very qualified applicants and a limited number of slots, something has to break the tie there. And in some cases, that might be, you know, let's say that the oboe player at the orchestra is graduating and you have two applicants, one plays the oboe, one plays the tuba. You take the the oboe player. That doesn't mean that someone is somehow a bad person or less deserving because they happen to be a tuba player. You know, let's say that the, the, the football team needs a wide receiver. If there's two applicants, one's a wide receiver, one's a tight end, you take, you take the wide receiver, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being a tight end. And similarly, what schools are allowed to do is they're allowed to say, everyone will benefit 
from having a campus where there are many different perspectives recognized. Everyone benefits from having a full orchestra and not just tuba players. Everyone benefits from having a full football team and not just tight ends. Everyone benefits if they have classmates from urban and rural areas. Everyone benefits if they have classmates who are veterans. And everyone benefits if there is a critical mass of students from multiple racial backgrounds. And so when deciding among many well-qualified students, it is acceptable to say, well, something has to break the tie and it would be better for everyone if our campus is racially diverse. So in deciding who gets, you know, who we are gonna pick out from amongst these very qualified applicants, you know, we will consider race and give some of those slots to people who would give us a more diverse campus. Hmm. Well, we have some comments coming in that I should read. Erica writes, I did listen yesterday to the hearings and want to say the female attorney that began by speaking about the need for well-educated, diversified leaders in the military is brilliant. I have a question about the coming decision. If race is eliminated as admissions criteria, why are any other categories allowed? I wish I had gone to law school. And Will writes, at the end of the day, the SCOTUS majority decision is already made, just like Roe. The majority is composed of people who already promised Trump that they would overturn affirmative action in any case brought before them. This cake is baked, folks. The game is already over as an African-American male who was fortunate to acquire undergraduate and graduate degrees before affirmative action. I am deeply distressed at another example of Jim Crow 2.0. SCOTUS has made these retrograde decisions in the past. There is precedent. So, Michelle Goodwin, a couple of things that these comments are making me think about, but mainly one of the first questions is, what are the range of outcomes we could see in these cases from the Supreme Court? Could we see just a full strike down that it's affirmative action based on race is unconstitutional? Could we see some sort of middle road with the military being allowed, Uh, you know? Well, look, you know, Justice Thomas has made clear uh, in the Dobbs case, which was just mentioned, that he's open to seeing various types of uh, progress with regard to privacy struck down, and he probably would not limit uh, his critique about American jurisprudence to just areas of privacy, such as gay marriage um, and other access to contraception, abortion, et cetera. And so the concern is real. Much of what we see being dismantled is the progress um, that's been made during the end of the Jim Crow era, where the Supreme Court began striking down sex discriminatory laws, laws that were race discriminatory. And then over the last quarter of a century, those laws that were discriminatory against people who are LGBTQ. You know, one of your listeners was referring to Elizabeth Prelogger. She's a U.S. Solicitor General. And what she mentioned is that, look, in this Supreme Supreme Court term, there are going to be nearly 30 men arguing cases before the Supreme Court, yet there will be only two women. And if we divorce this conversation from history, then we're just missing out. It was the United States Supreme Court in Bradwell v. Illinois that upheld a state law that denied women the opportunity to even be attorneys. And the Supreme Court said that women lacked reason and that women were better off taking care of their husbands and their children. That wasn't based on women not having intelligence, capacities, etc., But this is the history that gets baked into something that then stereotypes women later, that, well, women aren't attorneys, women aren't judges, women aren't leading firms because women have lacked these capacities, when that wasn't the case at all as a group of men who made laws that would define women as not being capable of being attorneys and bar them. And then a United States Supreme Court that would uphold those laws. And so the concern about 
what this reach could be, um, I think is a valid concern, even if in the end, it turns out to just be limited by uh, race. We already see the outcomes, as California has said, um, have been hard to overcome when they apply uh, policies that are simply race neutral. Mm, could a broad ruling, Ian Milheiser, on affirmative action, race-based affirmative action, affect workplace hiring? I mean, yes, both directly and indirectly. So directly in the sense that, like, if the Supreme Court declares that every law, including the Constitution, that mentions race discrimination absolutely forbids affirmative action programs, you know, there, there is a anti-discrimination law for education. There's also an anti-discrimination law for the workplace. And they probably that law would be interpreted the same way. And so one consequence is not only um, are universities vulnerable to um, to lawsuits if, if this case goes the way that I, I think it will, but employers could be as well. And it also impacts it indirectly in the sense that, you, you know, there's this ritual that happens every single time an affirmative action case reaches the Supreme Court where major employers from all over the country, you know, th th this, you know, this time around, there was a business brief, you know, businesses ranging from Apple to Starbucks, you know, all sorts of huge employers on this brief. There was a law firm's brief and there was a military brief by retired generals and admirals. And all of them said the same thing. They said, please don't forbid affirmative action. And the reason why is because we need our entry level employees who are coming out of college to come to us already knowing how to interact and you know how to work in a multiracial environment. The military brief was extraordinarily compelling. This is also the argument that the Solicitor General made. They, they said, look, if you have, if you don't have a racially diverse officer corps, you're still going to have a racially diverse enlisted you're still going to have racially diverse enlisted personnel. And how can you expect those enlisted personnel to respect their leaders if those leaders are all white, if those leaders do not look like them? Um, and so what the military is saying is we, our national security is going to be endangered if we don't have affirmative action programs. What businesses are saying is they're saying our employees are going to be worse at their job if they show up and they aren't accustomed to interacting with many, many different kinds of people from many, many different backgrounds. Um, and so again, you, you know, the, the, the question was, will this impact employers? The answer is an emphatic yes. We are talking with Ian Milheiser and Michelle Goodwin about the challenges to affirmative action policies at two colleges. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I do want to play this cut from John Roberts, where he talks about being concerned about affirmative action programs having an end date. Let's hear it. I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. You're always going to have to look at race because you say race matters to give us the necessary diversity. There's been this question, Michelle Goodman, about whether or not Chief Justice Roberts would be the person who would broker some kind of a compromise here, maybe strike down Harvard and UNC's policies without totally saying that uh, race-based affirmative action in higher ed is unconstitutional or even in other contexts. 
based on comments like this, what do you think? Unknown, you know, clearly over the last um, few years, the Chief Justice has been involved in a campaign to uh, make sure that there is respect for the court, even though publicly he's voiced concern about why Americans are concerned about the court. But privately, it seems that he is in some struggle to make sure that he has a stamp on this court and that this is a court that's understood as respecting the rule of law and stare decisis. And we've seen much of that fall apart in the last term. So that would suggest that behind the scenes, there might be some interest. I would imagine that there would be in brokering uh, some form of transition, perhaps, let's say, if affirmative action is on the way out, the Chief Justice might be on, you know, making an effort to try to um, lessen, I guess, the sting of it and might do exactly what you are suggesting. But I'm hoping that our conversation, and I know that it's coming to a close, could focus on what are the underlying problems that lead us to these questions about what universities are doing, such as the broken K through 12 system, such as these histories of inequality that are both socioeconomic and racial and have significant impacts on how children um, come up through an education system. And that this also includes children who are Asian American. I mean, there's a lot of conflation here, such as thinking that there is just one type of Asian American student, and that is not true. There are students who are Asian American and Filipino ancestry that struggle, um, Laotian and Hmong, et cetera. And so I think that sometimes these conversations don't necessarily explore even the diversity of Asian American communities and those that have been left on the outside as they look at just one particular um, aspect of an Asian American community. And sadly, oftentimes I think that that is done for purposes of race expedience. That's not what you're doing on the show at all, but I think that sometimes these lawsuits um, have a way of doing that. Well, Jessica writes, as a Korean American, I fully support affirmative action. The loud elite minority of AAPI voices against affirmative action do not represent me or the majority of AAPI folks who support this, not only for our community, but for Black, Latinx, Indigenous students who are trying to access higher education opportunities within a system that's embedded in white supremacy. Affirmative action is not the best solution, but one way to level the playing field as we work to dismantle systemic racism. Ian, when will we see a ruling? June, because it's a big one? Most likely June, all the biggest cases end in June. And I mean, if I could just respond quickly to your previous question. We have just 10 seconds, yeah. I am not optimistic about John Roberts here. Roberts, there are some issues that he's more moderate than the other Republicans on the court. Race is not one of them. He is as much of a hardliner on race as anyone who has served on the Supreme Court in the last century. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor at UC Irvine School of Law. Thank you both. Thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.